Well, good morning. So good to see you all today. Happy to be here at church this morning. All right. Thank you all for saying it with one voice. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. What a, thank you. Yeah. Happy Father's Day. It's upon us. You know, this is a great day. I really appreciate our men's ministry leadership team who has put together this event out here that Sarah just noted, the Custom and Chromes show, and they have a Pinewood Derby car for the kids, and again, the trampolines and all that. We have a great men's ministry leadership team here at Carney E. Free. If you've not yet been involved with men's ministry here, let me just share with you a couple things, though, that, that they have going. They have a men in action ministry, which is teams of four or five men who support single moms and widows and widowers in our church who could use some help around the house on a monthly basis. Isn't that great? We have 17 teams, about 80 men doing that on a monthly basis as part of their, their mission, part of their ministry here at this church. Another thing that we got going is Forge. You, you see my t-shirt that says Men's Forge. And on Monday evenings or Wednesday morning, the, there's two different Men's Forge gatherings where guys get together and they listen to some great teaching. But, but in addition to that, teaching, uh, a really important piece of it, probably even more important than the teaching, is the small groups Guys got getting together and talking about stuff that men need to talk about together. So if you're looking for, for a way to go get involved, guys, if you're looking for, for a community, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, the Men's Forge won't get going again till the fall. All of our uh, new ministries, or all of our regular scheduled ministries kind of launch in August, August 20th, 27th, the, that time frame. But if you're looking for a community, looking for a group of guys to connect with, Forge would be a great option. Looking for an area of ministry, Men in Action is a great one. And then we're thankful for, for the guys organizing the events like we have today as well. Okay, enough announcements today. Let's open into uh, the, our Bibles. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We're also going to be in Psalm chapter 8 because the author to Hebrews begins his message the, this morning with a quotation from the book of Psalms, chapter 8. And maybe you've noticed in our first few messages in this series that each and every time, each and every section of the Scripture, there have been a couple different quotations from the Old Testament. Why is that in the book of Hebrews? It's because, as we've noted, this is a group of Jewish Christians that are this person's audience. The author's writing to Jewish Christians in about 65, 66 A.D. They're well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so... When the author gives these quotations from the Old Testament, the audience well, would have immediately known, oh, that's, that's Psalm 8 that he's talking about there. So we're going to look at a few of these as we go, and, and hopefully along the way through the book of Hebrews, we get to understand a bit more how the Old Testament leads us to the New Testament, how they're not arbitrary, but they're intricately woven in together. So today, uh, he begins with Psalm 8, uh, which he quotes in Hebrews 2 verses 6 through 8, but let me read a few of these verses from Psalm 8, starting at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you even care for him? Anyone else ever felt that way? Well, when you look up at the stars, like how is it that you even Attend to me. You see that vast universe. Who, who am I that you would even care for me? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his 
feet. What a glorious truth uh, that God makes us in his image and then he gives us a sense of rain that we are to be loving stewards over this land uh, that he has created. Well, what is it about humanity that we intuitively know to look up to the heavens? No one else does that. There's no other creature that intuitively knows to look up to the heavens. There's no other creature that could be spoken of as is written here in Psalm 8 that they look up to the sky in wonder. Only humanity thinks about supernatural things. Likewise, only humanity aspires to greatness. Only humanity thinks about how do we make something better? How do we improve something? How do we take something far from where it is and make it great? And this all comes out of the reality that we are made in the image of God and he has given us dominion over all that he has made. You think about it, all other creatures that God has made have their heads down. They kind of look down to, to the ground and they just act instinctively. Think of the cows of the field. Let me give a little example. I'm not sure if this illustration works at all. Everyone was so quiet in the first service, so just humor me, okay? You, you, you think of the cows out in the field. They, they only look down, right? All they do day after day is chew their cud, spit it back up, Chew it some more. Sometimes they look ornery. Sometimes they look cute. But they don't aspire to anything, do they? They have gotten better over the generations. But that's because of man, not because of them, right? Somebody took that old sway back heifer some generations ago and said, I'm going to turn you into a black Angus. Took that sway back heifer some generations ago and said, I'm going to turn you into a, a Jersey or a Holstein or a Hereford cattle. But that wasn't their idea. They don't aspire to get better, do they? They are what they are. Man sees things and we say, how can we make it better? How can we grow it? Put another way, we take silk and we turn it into a beautiful dress. We have the ability to take iron and turn it into steel. To take a mixture of metals and turn them into chrome alloys so those cars will be cruising and shining. We have these abilities though, that no one else, that no other creature has. Well, you might ask, what exactly does that have to do on Sunday morning? What, what are you talking about here, Adrian? Well, stay with me here. It has much to do well, with our passage at hand. Our God-given aspiring creativity to look up and to make things better comes from our Creator because God pays us this highest compliment that you are to be my vice regents on earth to make things, and I'm going to give you this ability to make things better that no other creature that I have created is able to do. There's something of His image stamped on us and as a result, we look up to the stars, to the sky, to the heavens, and we feel this sense of awe. Once again, the psalmist is quoted here from Psalm 8 to Hebrews chapter 2, and he says, oh, when I look up at the skies, what is man that you're mindful of me, the son of man that you even care for me? But you have made me a little lower than the angels and crowned me with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under my feet. You see, God has made us for beauty. God has made us with glorious purposes. And so it's humanity, not any other creature, that has 
harnessed and built up this beautiful world to make it this place of wonder that we have today. But we also know that it's humanity, not any other creature, that has bloodied this earth as well. Isn't that so? It's not any other creature that has bloodied this earth and turned it into the horror that it is today. It's only men and women. You see, men and women are made in the image of God. They're the most glorious of all of God's creations. But we find ourselves also to be the saddest of all God's creations. We're able to build things up and make them glorious, and we're able to bloody things and make them terrors. And so we're left in this disappointed state that we all live in, this side of Eden, in which we still have the image of God, but that image of God in us has been scarred. It was once famously said that we are like kings sitting on crumbling thrones holding broken scepters. We're not all that we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be kings and queens, but now we're sitting on these crumbling thrones holding broken scepters. I love the way the author and theologian A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, we are the glory and the rubbish of the universe. Yes, you're welcome. We're both of those. But we never would have been the rubbish of the universe if we had not chosen the gutter. God didn't make us fall for the gutter, but we chose the gutter. Well, Hebrews 2 whispers to us that it's for this very reason that the eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. Let me say it again. The eternal Son of Man became the Son of God in order to rescue us from the gutter, to save us from our shame, to give us a fresh start. Jesus met us in the gutter. Take a look at Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. It says this, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should be the pioneer, the trailblazer, the author of their salvation and perfect through what he suffered. He should make us perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. What a glorious truth this is. Uh, Lord Jesus comes from heaven. He is the son of God and he enters into time and space to identify well with us. And the holy one comes to make us who were not holy to make us holy. He was perfect and he comes to us who are imperfect in order to give us his perfection. He was sanctified and he comes to those who are not sanctified in order to sanctify us. He need not ever suffer, but he comes into this bloodied earth where suffering is normative to suffer with us and to draw us to God. And in the midst of it all, even as he rescues us from the gutter, it says that he is not ashamed of you. He's unashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Please hold on to this thought Well, when you leave today. This is the big thought from the passage. It's so critical for us to hold on to. We have a God, we have a Savior who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. What a God we serve, that he's unashamed of me 
even with all the things that I have done wrong, he still invites me into the Father's family, and in no way does he say, "Mm, you don't really measure up. You're less than. You don't really belong here. No, what he does, he, he invites us into his family, and he shows no shame to us. Any big brothers in the room here today? How about big sisters? Raise your hand wide. Hi. Big brothers and sisters? Okay, I'm a big brother as well. Big brothers and big sisters, did you pick on your little brother or little sister? Let me give you a word to the wise, okay? I'm a big brother who unfortunately felt shame toward my little brother. And I felt shame to him for quite a while because he had the gall. You ready for this? He had the gall to want to hang out with me and my friends, okay? And me and my way too cool friends were way too cool for him. And so we would look down our nose at him, and I'd say, Ryan, get away from us. He's three years younger than me. And I just looked down my nose at him, shaming him, not because he had done anything wrong, but because he was a little tot that wanted to hang out with me and my big friends, So the word to the wise is this, that little brother started to grow in high school. And then he kept growing through high school. And up through his freshman and even to his sophomore year of college, he kept growing until this little six foot nothing guy was looking up at this six five little brother who was now 220 sculpted pounds as he was dunking on me and then pinning me to the ground. Big brothers and big sisters, remember, you will reap what you sow. Okay, but there's, there's this, this thing that's just natural in all of us that we marginalize and we segregate. And parents do it in the grocery store when they hear some kid crying and they say under their breath, whose kid is that? Right, you see it on the playground, some kid, whose kid is that? Okay, that's shaming. But we have a big brother, a savior in Jesus who is un ashamed of you and me, unashamed to call us his brother and sister. Shame has got to be one of the most powerful emotions known to humanity. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is a, convic- is a conviction in the soul. Sometimes it's even given by the Holy Spirit. It's a recognition that I've done something wrong, at least sometimes. Sometimes we have an overactive, guilty conscience, and we need to let things go. But at other times, we have a measured guilt in our soul because we've done something wrong and we need to apologize for it. That, that can be good. But shame is never a good thing. Shame says, not only did you do something wrong, you are wrong. Not only is there a problem, you are the problem. Shame says, you're too little or too big, too black, too white, too poor, too rich, too liberal, too conservative, too pure, too clean, too this, too that. Shame segregates and it marginalizes and in the process it makes people feel less than. Who can give thanks that we have a God who never shames us? Amen? We have a God who disciplines us for our own good, but we have a God who is not ashamed 
no matter what you have done, to call you his brother or sister. On this Father's Day, we're going to take a little look at a portrait of Jesus who is the very image of all that a man is made to be. Men, if you want to know what a man is made to be, read the Gospels often. Look at Jesus often. You'll see a man in all of his glory. Ladies, if you want to see what a man is supposed to be and how a man should treat you, read the Gospels often. Drench yourself in the character of Jesus. He's our big brother, unashamed of us. First, in Jesus, we have a protective brother. We have a victorious and protective big brother in Jesus. In ancient culture, the image of brotherhood was much like it is in ours. It spoke of loyalty and of intimacy and of strength, a sense of togetherness, a sense of protecting those who are weak, helping those who are weak. You see this from Jesus in verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the, the devil. They might destroy the devil and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You might circle in your Bible, as I did in my Bible, the words destroy, deliver, and fear. This is what our Savior, this is what our good friend, this is what our brother Jesus comes and he does for us. He destroys the work of the devil to deliver the children of God from the fear of death. I don't know about you, but I know people who go around throughout all of life fearing what happens on the other side of life. There are entire religious systems that are based on fear of what happens on the other side of life and never being able to be sure if you would go into the presence of God when you die. So this word destroy in the original Greek language means to render ineffective So when it speaks of Jesus destroying the work of the devil, he renders ineffective, he renders inoperative the work of the enemy to make us live in these emotional handcuffs with the fear of death. He looses us from all of that. I'll never forget the quote from the movie director Woody Allen who famously said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And many of us feel that way. Many people that we know feel that way. They're living in a constant fear of slavery, or constant fear of death, which amounts to a slavery, that they're in, in these chains. They, they don't know where they're going to go well when they die. But Jesus comes in and he destroys that fear. He destroys the, that work of the enemy. He renders it ineffective. He frees us from the fear of death. It doesn't mean that a Christian won't have some concern on his or her deathbed. You all know many wonderful saints who had concern on their deathbed. I think of many hospital visits that I've had over the years with lovely Christians who still had some concern as they were departing from this world. They had an eager expectation 
for heaven, but they had some concern, as many people would, because there's much that remains unknown about it. We have confidence in well where we're going, but, but there's still unknowns about things that we've never experienced. But it's interesting, well, when I've been with those saints in the hospital, can I tell you that partnered with their concern has been peace and hope and an abiding faith in the goodness of God and their place with him, the work of the enemy had been rendered ineffective. It's the words of Ephesians 6. Remember Ephesians 6, well, with the full armor of God, that we have the helmet of salvation over us, that we know we belong to Christ and nothing can take us out of his hands, that we have the sword of God's word and we have the shield of faith and we have the breastplate of Christ's righteousness over our chest, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. We have the belt of truth. We have feet fitted with the gospel of peace that we can have peace in life and we can have peace in death. So what's that little sucker the devil gonna do to, to you? Right? Nothing. I mean, his work of making us Sit in slavery because the fear of death has been rendered ineffective. We might still have some concern, but the bite of death is taken away by the gift of our protective and victorious brother. Second, we have a sacrificial brother. Look here at verse 17. Verse 17 says, says this about our sacrificial brother, Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a big word, propitiation, isn't it? My tongue gets stuck on it. It's a big word, propitiation. Well, what does that mean? And what does this mean that he's a faithful high priest, a merciful high priest in service to God? We're going to see this theme repeatedly in the book of Hebrews that Jesus called this faithful high priest. So we'll get into it more in the weeks to come. But for now, the high priest was this one in the Old Testament who was responsible for offering sacrifices for the Jewish people on behalf of the sins of the Jewish people to a mighty and righteous God who refused to look at the sins of the people and needed those sins to be atoned for, to be propitiated, to be atoned for, okay? And Jesus says that he is the high priest. The author of Hebrews here says he is the high priest, the faithful, merciful high priest who comes on our behalf and he offers sacrifice on our behalf to bring us to God. Now, the thing that's so amazing about this is Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice at the same time. He's the one who offers the sacrifice of himself. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Allow that to sink in, that because God was displeased well with our sin, and he is holy and he is righteous and he is unwilling to have fellowship with sin, Jesus took God's anger against sin onto himself in order to bring us to the Father. His righteousness for our unrighteousness to bring us to God. As Romans 5, 7 and 8 says, very rarely will someone die for a good person. And we all know this to be true. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
that while we weren't any good, that while I was sitting in the gutter, that while I was living life on my terms, while I didn't want anything to do with God, God sent his son Jesus to die for you and me. Oh, can we get an amen? This is the great high priest, sacrificial brother of ours. Finally, we have an empathetic brother. We have an empathetic brother who comes to us, who participates with us in our sufferings and in the experiences that we have as men and women. Christ can help us for the very reason that he came down to the dirt in which we live. He chose to participate in the sufferings and the temptations that we have to endure this side of heaven. You think about all that he gave up. He downsized from the mansion of heaven to a little bitty tiny house called earth. He left the glorious throne of heaven to go to a dusty stump called Nazareth. To use our contemporary language, he didn't go glamping. For 33 years, he pitched a tent and he went camping. Okay? Jesus divested himself. He took off power and took on powerlessness. The Lord of eternal life drank deeply from death. The one who needed to experience no pain experienced deep pain. The one who owns it all became poor in order that we might, through him, become rich. You think about this. The creator of it all came down to earth and he made tables and chairs and he got splinters in his hands. Okay? In a very real way, he became one of us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He partook of the same humanity that we have such that we can know we have a Savior who participates with us, who empathizes with us in whatever we might be going through. He even knows our temptations. Look up on the screen, you'll see verse 18. I wonder if you would read verse 18 aloud, woe with me, because it speaks so powerfully to Jesus' empathy with us in whatever temptation that you might be facing today. Would you join me? Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know that you're not alone when you face temptation? That you have a great high priest who can identify with you in flesh and blood with whatever temptation you might go through. You are not alone. And so men today, fathers, men, husbands today can remind themselves that Jesus is able to help us in our time of weakness. We go to him when we have nothing left and he gives us his grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. When we're about to lose it with our kids, we ask for his help. When we're about to say something that we would regret to our wives, we ask for his help and he gives it. When we fail to guard our tongue or we fail to guard our eyes or we fail to keep proper boundaries in our lives, we ask for his help and he will give us his help. In the moment that we ask, he's, he offers grace and mercy in our time of need. When we're aspiring toward the heavens and that aspiration turns into pride, we admit that to God. We ask for his help and Jesus is able to empathize with that because he 
was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. He comes to us in the gutters. He grabs us, he picks us up, and he cares for us. One of my favorite stories, and I'll close with this, is of a 19th century priest, an Orthodox priest by the name of John of Kronstadt. And Kronstadt was a city near St. Petersburg, Russia. And he was a priest during this 19th century season in which there was tremendous alcoholism around St. Petersburg, Russia. And the, the priests at that time were scared of the people. And they refused to go out into the streets and care for the people. They just waited for the people that were stuck in the mud, stuck in the gutters to come into the churches. Refused to meet people where they were. And John of Kronstadt kind of had a Popeyes type moment. He said, enough is enough. And he goes out to the streets and he begins ministering to the people where they were. And it's said of John of Kronstadt that he would go and meet these people in the gutters. And he would pick them up in their drunken stupor. And he would cradle them in his arms in the midst of their foul-smelling filth. And he would whisper in their ears, this is beneath your dignity. You were made to house the fullness of God. I love that line. You and I, were made to house the fullness of God. And yet we find ourselves in the gutter. So when we do, we remember that this is Jesus. He comes to us in the gutter. He gives us no shame. He picks us up from the gutter. He sacrifices for us, he protects us, he empathizes with us in our temptations, he takes us out of the gutter, and he desires to restore you and me to the Father's glory. This is our big brother. He is unashamed to identify with you today. Father, we thank you that you gave your son We thank you that you send your son not only as this glorious example for us of what a man really is, a portrait of what it means to live the full and abundant life, but you also sent your son to sacrifice for us, to save us from the work of the enemy, to protect us from the evil one and to sympathize with us in our weaknesses what a brother we have in Jesus that we would be called sons and daughters of the most high father God and therefore brothers and sisters of the son of God it's hard to imagine but You've made us for this purpose, Lord Jesus, to be your brother, to be your sister. And so we give ourselves to you afresh today. 
We invite you to reign in our lives. We invite you to change the way we think of ourselves as we consider the magnitude of your sacrifice for us. As we consider the fact that you're willing to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, we ask you for your help as we are tempted by all kinds of sins and fears and disappointments today. Would you draw near to us today? Would you give us hope and courage in knowing that we have a strong, able, victorious big brother who is on our side and if Christ is for us, who could possibly be against us? God's people say,